Well, welcome, everybody. I'm uh, Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor here at the uh, London School of Economics. Uh, before I introduce this evening's speaker, I would like to make a couple announcements. Make sure that you uh, turn your mobile on silent or turn it off. Um, it can be a bit of entertainment if it's a funny ringtone, but uh, it's usually it's a bit embarrassing. And I always ask it, but nevertheless, very often it still happens. Uh, but if you want to tweet, the hashtag is at LSE Fliege. Um, let me see. Um, so the plan for this evening is that after the lecture there will be time for Q&A. Uh, but now the most important part of my job is to introduce uh, this evening's speaker. So it's Gertjan uh, Vliegen. We're actually very proud that he's here because he became Dr. Vliegen right here at the London School of Economics in uh, 2005. And so this is his first speech as uh, external member of the MPC. And so we're you know, very pleased that he uh, wanted to do it here at this, uh, his alma mater. I, uh, I looked up his uh, dissertation this afternoon. I actually remembered it a little bit, but I wanted to refresh my memory. And he actually, in 2005, he graduated, I think. He really was talking about house prices and, and asset prices and frictions in financial markets and uh, what that meant for uh, monetary policy. So he was way ahead of his uh, time. Um, but so after graduating, while he was a student over here, he actually was already working at uh, Bank of England. He had several jobs over there, including the economic assistant of the then governor, Mervyn King. And I think then he went to Deutsche Bank and then to Brevin Howard. And now he's back at the Bank of England. And at least for this evening, he's back at LSE. So please join me in welcoming our speaker. Good evening. The, um, the LSE is such a, a grand institution that there are no fewer than three public lectures starting right now. Um, so if you wanted to hear about the mathematics of ancient Mesopotamia or about how emotions affect our decisions, uh, then I'm afraid to disappoint you because you're in the wrong lecture theater. But if you run, you can still make it. Uh, if you wanted to hear about why changes in debt demographics and the distribution of income could keep interest rates much lower than in the past, then you're in the right place. Sorry, I'm just trying to figure out where to put my papers so that they don't fall over. Uh, my own relationship with this grand institution uh, goes back nearly two decades. I first came to the LSE in 1997 to do my master's in economics. And a few years later, as Walter mentioned, I returned to do my PhD while I was already working at the Bank of England. And I've kept in touch with students and faculty through all these years, and I've benefited enormously from those relationships. So I'm really delighted uh, to be able to deliver my first speech as a member of the Monetary Policy Committee here tonight. That works. Um, in the pre-crisis years, most macroeconomists and policymakers used to think of the economy as typically being on a stable growth path with output near its potential level and with temporary shocks creating short-lived deviations from this path. Monetary policy was largely about responding to these temporary shocks to bring the economy back to its stable equilibrium. Monetary policy was therefore mainly driven by cyclical factors, factors that were temporary in nature 
and only explain deviations from the economy's potential, which in turn would make the inflation rate deviate from its target rate. I'm simplifying, of course, but I think a lot of central bankers and macroeconomists would recognize this basic description. In contrast, I believe the setting of monetary policy is currently driven at least as much by structural developments in the UK and globally that may have persistently changed the relationship between growth and interest rates. And my particular focus tonight will be on the three Ds, debt, demographics, and the distribution of income. Some economists have been paying attention to these issues for a long time, but monetary policymakers have not focused on them much until quite recently, and I want to argue that we should. I will argue that changes in the three Ds are interacting powerfully to create an environment where a given level of growth might be consistent with substantially lower interest rates than in the past. This environment might persist for years, even decades. And despite substantial uncertainty about the magnitude and duration of these effects, I'll try and draw out some policy implications. First, the economy may not revert to its pre-crisis average levels of growth and interest rates. But many of the models we use in policy analysis do revert to pre-crisis averages because persistent effects from the three Ds are ruled out by design to keep the model simple. Although models are useful simplifications of a complex world, we should heed Einstein's recommendation that everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. We should be careful not to place too much weight on models that have strong mean reversion built in by assumption. The longer our forecasting horizon, the more forcefully this argument applies. Second, for a given level of growth, real interest rates may remain significantly lower than in the past. The possibility of this scenario makes me more patient, other things equal, before raising rates, because we may not have to raise rates very much once we start. Moreover, the fact that at very low interest rates, policy cannot respond as effectively to bad news as it can to good news also makes me more patient before raising rates. Finally, I will discuss recent developments in UK growth and inflation and argue that in order to be confident of the medium-term inflation outlook to justify raising bank rates, I would like to see more evidence that growth is stabilizing after its recent slowdown and that a broad range of indicators related to inflation are generally on an upward trajectory from their current low levels. Debt matters. That was a controversial statement a decade ago. It's far less controversial now. Post-crisis, we now have ample evidence that households and firms with high debt levels reduce spending more sharply than those with lower debt levels in response to a downturn. After a drop in income, debt relative to income goes up even further to a level that is higher than where the borrower or the lender wants it a debt overhang. The borrower wants or needs to reduce debt, and in order to achieve that, they cut back spending very sharply. These micro-effects can have macro-consequences. Recessions that follow a substantial build-up in debt are even more severe and longer-lasting than recessions without a substantial build-up in debt. And that's exactly what this chart shows, the blue line being consumption after a low-debt recession, and the red line 
the average consumption response after a high debt recession. The objective of policymakers is to keep spending, sorry, to keep inflation close to target by minimizing the shortfall in spending, keeping the economy operating as closely as possible to its full potential. In response to any reduction in spending relative to potential, the central bank cuts interest rates. In response to a sharp and persistent reduction in spending following a debt overhang, the central bank cuts interest rates sharply and keeps them low persistently. I'd like to elaborate on the forces at work here. To reduce an aggregate debt overhang, there are broadly two mechanisms available. The first, fast but painful in the short term, would be for the borrower to restructure the debt, imposing a loss on the lenders. That mechanism is typically only available in a small number of cases, and there are no economy-wide tools available for large-scale debt restructuring across many borrower categories. The question is, in any case, entirely outside the remit of the Monetary Policy Committee. The second method for reducing a debt overhang is slow. The rate of income growth, if the rate of income growth of the borrower exceeds the rate of interest on the loan, then simply keeping the stock of debt fixed, i.e. not borrowing any more, will reduce the ratio of debt to income over time without sharp additional reductions in spending. Why is it important for interest rates to be as low as possible? Because with high interest rates, the debt burden would keep rising as interest gets added to the stock of debt, keeping pace with or even outstripping income growth. And why is the process slow? Annual aggregate income growth in most economies tends to be a few percent per year. And interest rates on loans are typically above zero, even with policy rates that are nearly zero. So the debt burden in this method erodes only by a few percentage points per year, at most. Monetary policy is set to keep spending in line with the economy's potential, so that inflation is close to target, as I just said. Monetary policy is therefore indifferent between who does the spending. However, if the behavior of highly indebted borrowers is such that they cut spending more than interest rate reductions are able to stimulate the spending of others, other borrowers or savers, then monetary policy must take into account the deleveraging process. Not because it matters per se, but because the debt deleveraging affects aggregate spending and in turn inflation. In 2008 and 2009, the MPC cut interest rates all the way to half a percent, what it perceived to be the effective lower bound at the time, and judged that this was still not enough. Asset purchases were a tool to try to keep stimulating spending further when policy rates could not be cut any further. However, asset purchases are an imperfect substitute for lower interest rates, as they transmit a spending impulse to the economy via different channels, such as wealth effects or reduced risk premia, and the impact of asset purchases, a relatively new tool, is far more uncertain. The fact that policy rates are constrained near zero may have contributed to the persistent disappointment of growth in the recovery. If we had been able to cut interest rates by several percentage points more, the deleveraging process might have been faster, and spending might have recovered sooner. So it is the presence of the lower bound on policy rates, together with a debt overhang, that has the potential to create persistently weak recoveries. 
This argument also highlights a separate reason for why it is particularly critical during a deleveraging period to keep inflation expectations anchored. As I've argued, the speed of deleveraging is influenced by the extent to which nominal income growth exceeds nominal interest rates. If, during the weak recovery, inflation drifts persistently below target when interest rates are at their effective lower bound, this reduces the maximum pace of deleveraging that can be achieved, and it delays the moment at which normal spending patterns can resume. In this particular argument, inflation has an asymmetric effect on medium-term growth prospects, which in turn feed back onto inflation prospects. Low inflation has a greater risk of becoming entrenched. Has the low interest rate environment been effective in facilitating an unwind of the debt overhang? Yes. The UK is a good example. As shown by the red line in the chart, private sector debt to GDP, which rose from 120% to 190%, during the pre-recession decade, has fallen back since then to less than 160%, unwinding approximately half of the increase. However, looking at the world more broadly, I've highlighted a few other countries in this chart, and here I'm summarizing them, we see that advanced economies as a whole have not yet managed to reduce their debt burden. So this is the red line which you see went up before the crisis and has since stabilized but not fallen back. So the process of reducing the debt overhang probably has further to run. Moreover, emerging markets, the blue line in this chart, experienced a more recent run-up in indebtedness, which started around the time of the crisis and is still continuing. In other words, their deleveraging has not even begun. This has the potential to create persistent spending disappointments if monetary policy is unable to stimulate other spending sufficiently. My second D is for demographics. Like debt, it can have long-lasting effects on the relationship between growth and interest rates. The mechanisms are more complex and work along many dimensions, but the impact is potentially large and even longer-lasting than the effect of debt, because demographic transitions persist for decades. There are two demographic changes at work across a wide range of countries, which interact in complex ways. First, longevity has risen and is is expected to continue rising for the foreseeable future. We are living longer. Second, fertility has declined. We're making fewer babies. This leads to persistent changes in key demographic variables. First, population growth is slowing. Second, and more importantly, because fertility was high many decades ago during the baby boom and has been low thereafter, the growth in the number of people of working age is slowing more sharply than the population as a whole. If you make fewer babies, eventually that means you're making fewer workers. The economic impacts of these effects do not all go in the same direction. A rise in longevity without a commensurate rise in the retirement age, makes us want to save more, as our savings will have to sustain us for longer. A rise in desired savings pushes the real interest rate down. Slower growth in the working age population means that we need less capital 
or need to grow the capital stock more slowly. Fewer workers require fewer buildings and machines. Each unit of capital becomes less productive. There is therefore a reduction in desired investment, again pushing the real interest rate down. The fact that we are facing a rise in the number of retirees relative to the number of workers, also known as the dependency ratio shown here, means that we will have more people with lower savings rates. Retirees generally don't save, and fewer people with higher savings rates. Workers do save. That compositional change lowers total desired savings and pushes the real interest rate up. So which effect dominates? Much further research needs to be done to be confident of the answer. But let me offer two indications that the net effect might be to push real interest rates down significantly. First, in a recent paper, Carvalho, Ferrero, and Necchio propose an economic model to analyze the interaction between all three effects. They calibrate a model to match demographic changes that have taken place in G7 countries since 1990 and find that the net effect of these demographic changes is to push real interest rates down by one and a half percentage points so far, with a potential further reduction of a half percentage point still to come. These are not small numbers. Second, let us look at the example of Japan. Japan has undergone the demographic changes that other advanced economies are going through, but experienced its reduction in the growth of the workforce and its increase in the dependency ratio much earlier on. Japan is about two decades ahead in demographic terms. And in this figure, the point I'm trying to make is that the yellow line, which is Japan, has this demographic hump around the late 1970s, uh, early 1980s, whereas many other advanced economies um, have the hump approximately 20 years later. Long-term interest rates in Japan fell in the 1990s, showing a very similar pattern then to long-term interest rates in other advanced economies in recent years. Indeed, earlier work by Carvalho and Ferrero suggests that failing to identify the negative effect of demographics on real interest rates, and hence on the appropriate stance of monetary policy, could explain the persistent deflation in Japan since the 1990s. Where does that leave us? The economic effects of demographics are clearly complex, but there are some persuasive arguments, I think, that suggest that the combined effect might be to push down on real interest rates, and there is at least the possibility that the effect is quite large. Moreover, demographic effects are even more slow-moving than debt effects, so the impact on real interest rates might be even longer-lasting. My third D is for the distribution of income. This is the most speculative one of my three arguments, and the one that needs further research the most. Our understanding of the full macroeconomic effects of different income and wealth distributions is still in its infancy, but the work so far suggests it matters greatly. For example, although it has long been recognized that monetary policy might have distributional effects, the textbook model has monetary policy working exclusively through what's called intertemporal substitution of a representative agent, which is basically the consumption-saving decision of each individual. Using a far richer framework, 
Eau Claire finds that a redistribution channel could be as important in explaining why aggregate consumer spending reacts to transitory changes in interest rates. If distributional considerations are of first-order importance for our understanding of the monetary policy transmission, then large shifts in the distribution of income and wealth should be expected to have material consequences for monetary policy. To put simply, if we know that monetary policy works through distribution, it's natural to expect that distribution has monetary policy effects. As Piketty, Atkinson and Size, many other co-authors have pointed out, the distribution of wealth and income within many countries has become less equal over the past several decades. In particular, the wealth and income of the richest segment of the population has risen much faster than that of the rest of the population. This particular chart has a selection of advanced economies and shows the income share of the top 10% of the distribution as a share of all income. The next chart shows that in certain advanced emerging economies, you've seen a similar uh, uptrend in the past few decades. There is ample micro-evidence that the rich have a low marginal propensity to spend. That's highly intuitive. If you give a rich person 10 pounds, he is less likely to spend it, i.e. more likely to save it, than if you give a poor person 10 pounds. By shifting economic resources towards those more likely to save them, rising income inequality might also be pushing up on desired savings. Rachel and Smith, in a recent paper, perform a simple calculation. If you increase the share of national income that has gone to the richest fifth by seven percentage points, which is roughly the change that we have actually seen in the U.S. since the 1980s, the net effect on desired savings is an increase of around two percentage points. This change alone could push real interest rates down by half a percentage point. That's only a partial equilibrium calculation, which leaves the demand for investment unchanged. But recent attempts to address the question of rising inequality in a general equilibrium context suggest that an overall negative effect on real interest rates and even a potential role in explaining persistent slumps when combined with the effective lower bound on interest rates. The potential impact of changes in the distribution of income goes much further than the direct compositional effect on savings. Kumov and Rancière have a paper where they point out that a rise in inequality could itself reinforce a rise in debt, as households at the lower end of the income and wealth distribution try to maintain consumption growth despite weaker income growth. They show that it has been the lower end of the wealth distribution that has driven the rise in household debt. When there is a realization that the drop in income growth is more persistent than initially believed, the accumulated debt will be seen as too high, and households will be trying to deleverage, pushing income growth down further for a sustained period beyond the impact of income inequality alone. More generally, it's not hard to imagine, although very hard to model, a story where all three Ds interact. A high debt economy faces headwinds and needs lower interest rates. A high debt economy with adverse demographic trends needs even lower interest rates. And a high debt economy with adverse demographic trends and higher inequality, well, you get the picture.
As policymakers, how are we to incorporate these potentially large but uncertain effects in our thinking? Standard models for analyzing monetary policy are not suited to analyzing these effects. The workhorse models for monetary policy are still mostly models with an infinitely lived representative agent and a deterministic steady state, as well as further simplifying assumptions. Do we use these assumptions because we believe in them? No. We use them because they make the models easier to work with. Recently, there has been much progress in models that abandon these simplifying assumptions. But these mechanisms are still a long way from being usable in a central bank forecasting model. In the meantime, we should focus on what we may be missing in our simplified models and what insights the more complex models provide even if they're not part of our regular toolkit. Representative agent models, which means models where everyone is the same, imply that by design, debt doesn't matter. There are no demographics and there is no distribution of income. That's an important insight. The three Ds don't matter in standard models, not because rigorous analysis concludes that this is so, but because it's been assumed to be so. It's not surprising, therefore, that many economists struggle to make sense of low real interest rates when using a representative agent model. A deterministic steady state means that the model dynamics are driven by temporary shocks, after which the variables all return to where they were before. Where they return to is typically not explained by the model. Moreover, it's easy to learn how the economy works, because everything is stable. So assuming that we know the parameters of the model seems a reasonable assumption. With the three Ds, these assumptions are obviously wrong. Variables can progress along multi-decade trends without any shocks at all, and the past might be a terrible guide to the future. Having established that the workhorse models are not suitable for analyzing the three Ds, should we bend the models altogether? Certainly not. Many features of the workhorse model are still valid. Policy rates still influence short-term growth. Growth still influences slack. Slack still influences inflation. The key steps of the monetary transmission channel are not lost. But what growth rate will the economy converge to after the short-term effect of monetary policy wears off? What level should the policy rate reach when inflation is sustainably back to target? And might where we end up in the medium term also be influenced by policy? These are the questions where the 3Ds play a potentially large role. Given our still limited understanding of these issues, let me nevertheless offer some policy implications, even based on what little we know. My first policy implication is this. Don't be confident that the future will look like the past. Representative agent models with a deterministic steady state will always forecast that the future is like the past. They are not useful for answering questions about very long-lasting changes to real interest rates and growth. Relying on these models for analysis of what the economy will look like in a few years is very risky indeed. It results in mean reverting forecasts like those made by state-of-the-art DSGE models. In this picture, successive lines are successive estimates made in real time, meaning made at the time in 2008, 2010, 2012, 
of what would happen to real interest rates. So the model was very good at saying, look, the economy is having a tough time. Real interest rates need to be low. But at every point, the model said, but in a few years' time, things will be much better, and real interest rates will be much higher. And this is not just the property of that particular model. It's actually what most forecasters thought. So this is a picture of forecast of where uh, the Bank of England's policy rate would be at the end of each calendar year. And again, successive lines are successive forecasts made each year. And as we see at each point, everyone expects rates to go back to close to where, where they were before. And only very gradually, they're revising that endpoint down. And each time, they're getting the date. Uh, they're too optimistic about uh, when the process starts. And this is a UK chart. And this is a US chart showing exactly the same thing. Predicting inexorable reversions to the mean can lead not only to big and persistent forecast errors, but can culminate in serious policy mistakes. My second policy implication is this. Be prepared for the possibility that real interest rates will remain well below their historical average for a very long time, even with economic growth that is close to or only a little bit below its historical average. This has a direct impact on my own policy views. If I were confident that over the next few years, policy rates would have to rise significantly to match historical averages of real interest rates, I would be looking for the first possible opportunity to raise rates, to avoid having to raise them very sharply in the next few years. But I am not confident of that at all. Rather, I think it's plausible that the appropriate real interest rate for the economy might be very low for years to come. So policy rates, when they rise, may not need to rise by much over the coming years. These medium-term considerations make me relatively more patient now before raising rates. The need for patience is further reinforced by the asymmetry that I believe we currently face in monetary policy. While there is some scope for further stimulus should it be required, both via small further reductions in interest rates and via further asset purchases, I believe our ability as a central bank to stimulate spending is nevertheless smaller than our ability to restrain spending due to the effective lower bound on interest rates and the fact that asset purchases are an imperfect substitute for rate cuts. Even with symmetric preferences around the inflation target, i.e. I'm not looking to overshoot against the inflation target, I must take account of the fact that we cannot respond to bad news as effectively as we can respond to good news. That potentially makes the effect of bad news more persistent, even when monetary policy does all it can. Having discussed highly persistent factors that might influence the outlook for years or decades, let me now shorten my horizon a little and discuss recent developments in the UK economy. The UK recovery gained momentum in 2013, with year-over-year -year GDP growth rising from less than 1% to a local peak of around 3% in early 2014. Since then, growth has been slowing modestly to reach a pace close to 2%. Over the same period, the composition of global growth has changed, with advanced economy growth relatively stable, with growth in emerging economies falling quite sharply contributing to volatility in global financial markets. Oil prices have fallen sharply 
due to a combination of rising supply and easing global demand, the risk of a further slowing in emerging economy growth, and the risk of spillovers to advanced economies is one of the key downside risks the MPC highlighted in its November inflation report. Domestically, growth has been supported by resilient private domestic demand in the face of headwinds from abroad as well as from ongoing domestic fiscal consolidation. Since 2013, the unemployment rate in the UK has gone from falling rapidly initially to falling more slowly, to now just above 5% in the most recent data. Headline CPI, meanwhile, has fallen from nearly 3% to around zero for most of last year, well below the 2% inflation target. Most of the deviation of headline inflation from target can be attributed to falls in the prices of food, energy, and other imported goods, which in turn were due to the combined effect of sharply lower oil prices and a stronger exchange rate. But aside from headline CPI, other measures of inflation have also been weak. Core inflation has eased from above 2% in 2013 to below 1% last summer and has recovered a little since then. Household inflation expectation surveys have been slightly below their 15-year averages. And some surveys of companies' inflation expectations, for which we don't have long data histories, have eased recently. As I mentioned earlier, an easing of inflation pressures carries an asymmetric risk, as it can generate its own persistence when monetary policy is close to its lower bound. Market measures of future inflation remain consistent with the target, and it's crucial that this is maintained. With the unemployment rate approaching the MPC's estimate of long-run equilibrium of around 5%, we might have expected to see some signs of upward wage pressure. But my interpretation of a wide range of indicators related to pay is that upward wage pressure has been surprisingly absent so far. The official data on average weekly earnings, the so-called AWE, showed some signs of acceleration in late 2014 and early 15, but since then, the upward momentum has stalled and even reversed partially. Regular private sector pay growth briefly rose to nearly 4%, but has since eased back to around 2%. Looking at a range of other pay-related indicators, I do not see convincing evidence yet of upward momentum in pay. With growth still slowing, inflation pressures either easing outright or disappointing relative to forecast, I do not believe the conditions are in place to warrant a rise in bank rate. Although I share the MPC's November forecast of stabilizing growth and gently rising inflation pressure to bring inflation back to its 2% target in around two years, we have been disappointed on both the growth and inflation front since November. I need to see further evidence that growth is indeed stabilizing and that a broad range of indicators relating to inflation, inflation expectations, and pay growth are generally on an upward trajectory from their current low levels before being confident enough in the outlook to justify a rise in bank rate. Let me conclude. I've argued that changes in debt demographics and the distribution of income, the three Ds, may have persistently altered the relationship between real interest rates and growth over horizons of years or even decades. 
the economy may not revert to its pre-crisis average levels of growth and interest rates. But many of the models we use in policy analysis do revert to pre-crisis averages because persistent effects from the 3Ds are ruled out by design. For a given level of growth, real interest rates may remain significantly lower than in the past. The possibility of this scenario makes me more patient, other things equal, before raising rates. Moreover, at very low interest rates, policy cannot respond as effectively to bad news as it can to good news. That asymmetry also makes me more patient before raising rates. The recent evolution of the UK data has been one of growth that's still solid but has been slowing. Inflation pressures remain muted across a wide range of indicators, despite low levels of unemployment. In order to be confident enough of the medium-term inflation outlook to raise bank rates, I would like to see evidence that growth is not slowing further and that a broad range of indicators related to inflation are generally on an upward trajectory from their current low levels. Thank you very much. I'm now available for questions. So now there's uh, time for a Q&A. So what we're going to do is, is that we're going to collect a couple of questions, and then Jan will answer. And so please wait until one of the stewards has given you a uh, microphone and try to be concise. Anybody else? Global income inequality has an increase. So why should we focus on the within-country inequality? I didn't, I didn't hear the first part of your question. Uh, global income inequality has not increased. Uh, so why, why is the within-country income inequality the measure you're using if we're talking about uh, global interest rates? And Sofana, behind you. Hi, um, you mentioned some of the flaws with the representative agent models. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what would you like to replace them with or supplement them with? Um, would a sustained um, recovery in the UK economy lead to an um, inevitable rise in inflation? So on your first question about um, global versus within-country inequality, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting point because, as many people probably know, uh, inequality across everyone in the world has reduced, but inequality within a lot of countries uh, has increased. And so the question is, uh, which one is more important? Um, the uh, two points I would make. First, you know, this particular effect of... I think the effect of inequality particularly matters uh, in that it has been driven by the very top of the income distribution, people who have very low marginal propensities to consume. Uh, and, and the second point is that the, there is a debate about you know, whether these changes matter on a global scale or they matter within each country, which is basically a debate about how integrated are financial markets. Um, the point I would make there is that I, I don't like looking only at global averages because what you end up doing is you put too much weight, first of all, on 
countries that have much lower GDP, and you put too much weight on countries that have much less participation in asset markets than the advanced economies. And so in the end, you want some complicated hybrid of looking at advanced economies and some emerging market economies that have a lot of asset market participation, but it's probably not the right idea to average simply across the world. Uh, the second question about, um, it's a cheap shot to say that representative agent models are not enough. I know that, uh, and I don't have some fantastic uh, research program on everything that we should replace them with. Uh, simply making the point that we should be a little more conscious of all the things we are leaving out. And I know most of the people in this room are very conscious of that, but I can tell you that in forecasting discussions, uh, that point gets easily forgotten and uh, when people are wondering what's going to happen over the next few years, there is always this innate reaction when they're out of ideas to say, well, let's see what the model says. But we know what the models say. The models always go back to where they were before. Uh, and so the research program, I guess, is one of you know, trying to incorporate uh, some of this richness without overly complicating the models to such a degree that they become unusable. Uh, and then your last question about does, does a, a sustained recovery inevitably lead to inflation? Um, I think the answer is yes, if it goes on long enough and if it's strong enough. Uh, what we've seen so far is that the recovery that we have had and the fall in the unemployment rate that we have had has evidently been not enough yet to push inflation up. Uh, it's not only below target, it's not even clear that it has uh, sufficient upward momentum. So it's, it's a question of degree and, and, uh, and time rather than a question of the concept. You know, I still do believe that when the recovery is strong enough and goes on for long enough, inflation will eventually rise. I think there was a question at the back. Where did the mic go? Um, just, oh, you go first. That's okay. yeah. um, good evening. My name is Gary Chmazinger from the University of Kent. Uh, I just wanted to ask, um, you spoke a lot about the the lower boundary in terms of monetary policy. Um, we've recently seen a drop in oil prices. To what extent does that alleviate uh, the power of the lower boundary, or to what extent does that help the monetary policy? Thank you. And then there's a question at the back, and then after that, you're in the middle. Hi, uh, David Millican from Reuters. I was similarly interested in sort of oil prices and sort of whether we should sort of be understanding the sort of fall in them as a sign of sort of weak global demand and something we should be worried about, or whether in fact that they're a sort of good thing for people in sort of most sort of Western economies because it reduces the sort of cost of living and might actually boost growth somewhere along the line. Given the uh, very slow-moving nature of the forces that you are talking about, bearing down on the um, natural real rate, um, might it not be uh, a good idea if the government instructed you to pursue, uh, at a point where it was even feasible, a higher rate of inflation in order to make more room to respond to uh, bad news and eliminate the uh, asymmetries that you're also worrying about? There are two questions related to, related to oil. Um, there's a few points to make. First, we think that the drop in oil prices has been both uh, driven by weaker global demand, uh, but also increased supply. And especially the, the, the most recent leg down 
uh, probably had a big uh, supply component, uh, basically the uh, OPEC production restrictions being uh, being abandoned. Um, and, of course, there is a, a positive effect on purchasing power. Uh, consumers who have uh, energy and energy-related products in their consumer baskets will see a, a rise in, in, in real incomes. However, I would highlight that the, you know, the point about relieving the lower bound is not obvious that it gets relieved by lower oil prices because what lower oil prices also do is they create a period of lower headline inflation for even longer than we were previously thinking. And so it increases the risk, as I mentioned before, that if you have a period of low inflation that it becomes entrenched because there is limited ability at very low rates and with very low rates of inflation for the Monetary Policy Committee to bring real rates down. So the... um, I don't think it unambiguously makes our life easier uh, if oil prices fall, and it might even make it harder because of the, the effect on inflation. Uh, then uh, Tony's point about a higher inflation target, I'm going to take the cop-out answer and say um, it's, it's a very important uh, point to think about you know, if these forces are indeed at play, what does that mean for what the inflation target should optimally be? And lots of people have had uh, an interesting uh, contribution to that, and Charlie Bean, who's sitting right there, has written about that quite recently. But I have to remind people about the, the institutional setup in the UK, which is that uh, the members on the MPC receive the inflation target from the government. The government sets it, and we execute monetary policy to achieve that target. And so it's not our job to question uh, what that target is and whether it should be something different. That's a debate for economists who are not on the MPC and for the government itself. There's a question, there's two questions there on the balcony. Just in terms of demographics, again, what signals are you seeing in terms of the sort of a generational effect uh, on, on terms of incomes and spending, which might have some crossover with um, uh, income distributions? Is that question clear? No, it isn't actually. Okay. Could you elaborate? Uh, yeah, you look confused. Um, in terms of, um, you know, we often hear, obviously, asset prices are going up. That makes it harder for a new um, uh, younger cohort of workers to get a leg up in terms of purchasing assets and becoming middle class. Um, there's also, in several other countries, been uh, wage deflation for younger workers. Um, are these signals that you're receiving? Are you worried about those things? Or do you see them as a sort of status quo that kind of carry on and won't have much effect? Ivan Legree, actuary. Um, I was interested in your comment on demographics and their uh, effect on long-term interest rates going down over here. I can't see you. Oh, thank you. Um, Have you considered the impact of the financing of retirement programs uh, being affected by the demographic shift and potentially demand for bonds in going up, further pushing down interest rates? I think there was another question on the balcony. Um, given the fact that both cost push and demand pool pressures are tending to the negative, why is the MPC considering raising interest rates? Let's take one more question on the balcony. Just at the back there, yeah, go ahead. Uh, two questions from me. Uh, firstly, it, it's welcome that you're sort of uh, abandoning assumptions on mean reversion on 
growth and interest rates, but I thought uh, one assumption that you seem to still hold uh, hold is uh, the the natural rate of unemployment is around five percent uh, in in an environment of uh, quite a different welfare system with universal credit coming in and, and a clear incentive for people to to work rather than be on long term welfare. Could it be a bit lower, say, say four to four and a half percent? The second uh, question w was that uh, in, a, in an environment of uh, oil, oil price shocks, can, can very, very much volatility on the commodity prices, which the bank has no control of because the UK is a, effectively a price taker, would it make sense? to target, say, something like services inflation, which is kind of domestic, rather than overall inflation, which 50% of what we don't really have control over. Thank you. Uh, that's a long list. Uh, a, a question on um, house prices and, you know, what signals are we seeing in the, in the waste distribution? Uh, there's some, uh, there's a UK-specific point on house prices to make, which is that uh, unlike in many of the other crisis countries, the UK started uh, the, um, the recession with a slight shortfall in housing supply. And then when uh, housing uh, construction collapsed, uh, the, house, the shortfall in housing supply became even bigger. Uh, and so there are some idiosyncratic reasons to do probably with the, the way the UK's uh, planning permission works. That means that the UK probably has a bigger shortfall uh, than, than other countries. And so there are you know, reasons why house prices are, are, are very high that have not very much to do with uh, monetary policy and interest rates at all. Um, your point about the, the wage distribution, so we don't specifically look at what, what you're asking, I, I think. But one thing we do look at is when I was talking about the debt burden, uh, I was showing you some very simple charts of um, the ratio of private sector debt to GDP, for example, uh, which is a massive shortcut, just to make the point. But actually, what really matters is the distribution of the debt across a whole bunch of different entities, because the whole point is that you know, when you have one person with a lot of debt and another person with very little debt, that's not the same thing as two people with a modest level of debt. And so one thing we do look at a lot is we look at the distribution of uh, both income and debt servicing combined, so the, the, the debt servicing ratio across households. Uh, and what we find is that there's an encouraging sign, which is that the households who were under most severe financial strains, so had the highest uh, debt relative to their income and the highest debt servicing relative to their income, their financial situation has improved in recent years just as the aggregate has improved. Uh, but it is still worse than before the crisis. So it happens that the aggregate picture is roughly mirrored in these distributional pictures, but just to give you the, the confidence that we, we now have data on, on the entire distribution and we monitor it very carefully. Um, somebody asked about the importance of uh, how retirement is financed. Absolutely, it's a, it's a crucial uh, subject and I haven't gone into it at all here because I can't talk about everything, but actually a lot of people uh, who are doing research on the link between demographics and interest rates also point out that a key ingredient is 
uh, how your retirement system is financed and whether it's pay-as-you-go or, uh, or whether it's fully financed and what assets it's financed with. So it, it's a very important subject, uh, and um, I didn't mean to say that it's unimportant by not mentioning it. It's just that I, I ran out of time. Um, somebody up there asked, uh, if everything's so bad, why are you thinking about raising interest rates? Uh, I'm answering for myself only here, and uh, what I was trying to explain is that I'm actually not in a hurry to raise interest rates and that I need to see all the things that you talked about. I need to see them improve before I think the conditions are right. So you're absolutely asking the right question. Uh, And um, a question about uh, why are we still holding on to the estimate that the equilibrium unemployment rate is 5%. Um, We're not, actually. We're constantly thinking about you know, whether that is right, and we've actually revised it down uh, recently, and we're again in the process ahead of the February inflation report for thinking about whether it's the right number. There are some factors that you might think push it up. There are other factors uh, that might push it down, and actually we are getting information from wages and saying, well, if you know, wages, I certainly think that if wages are this weak, then maybe that's telling me something that the unemployment rate could fall uh, a lot further before uh, generating inflation pressure, which is another way of saying the equilibrium unemployment rate is lower than, than 5%. So uh, personally, I do put some, some weight on that, on that risk, and, and we are evaluating and reevaluating that constantly. Um, and then finally, a question, if, if commodity prices and oil prices in particular are so volatile, why do we have it in the index uh, that we target? Uh, the index that we target is meant to be a comprehensive index. You, know, you spend a significant share of your income on uh, energy and food, uh, and uh, both of which have very volatile prices. But the, the framework allows for us to look through that volatility. That's why um, you know, we have the, the possibility and, and actually the, the freedom that we use all the time to say, well, inflation is temporarily away from target now because of you know, some volatile prices which I think will, we think will drop out. And really what we're concerned with is the medium-term evolution of inflation. Uh, and so you could, in theory, uh, think about a, a more stable measure to target so that you wouldn't have to explain that short-term versus medium-term distinction. But it was always come at the cost of, you know, what are all the things that you leave out? And then people would say, well, but if you leave all these things out, then it's no longer representative of the cost of my living. And so this is the trade-off that we're, we're grappling with. There's two questions there in the middle. Been trying to raise their hand quite a while, and then hey, uh, just a quick on um, how do you think technology affects technology development, technological progress affects the distribution of income. Richard Marshall, Standard Life Investments. Um, If growth comes in at 2%, do you think that the UK will need additional support and what support would that form take? Um, And secondly, I believe you have UK productive potential at about 2.5%, but the OECD and IMF have lower at 1.8, 1.7. Can you talk a little to where the differences lie in that? Joe Ward with Bloomberg News. I was wondering if you think, as many on the MPC do, that the next move on rates will be up, or is that still an open question for you? Thanks. 
Well, one more here at the second row. Um, do you think that there is a prospect of another recession in the near future? And if so, how will the Bank of England react different, uh, differently to how it reacted during the last recession? Um, may I? Um, I want to return to this point on inequality. I certainly understand the theoretical argument about the high end of the income scale, getting more of the income and therefore the aggregate savings rate going up. But in the UK and the US, probably the two countries you'd think of that most, the, the household savings rate's fallen almost consistently over the 35-year period. So I'm intrigued the, the gap between the theory and the empirics on that. Um, so let me take a few of these before I, I forget them. Um, there's a question about the impact of technology on uh, the distribution of income. Uh, I, I don't have anything particularly original uh, to contribute, although I, I do note that um, what a lot of people are talking about in that context is this so-called hollowing out of the income distribution and that, um, that various bits of technological progress uh, make it that the... The middle of the income distribution gets hit hardest, and so uh, what you get is that they they suffer the most, which is not completely the same as what I'm talking about because you know you do have um, the, the very bottom remaining relatively constant and the very top actually gaining a little bit. So it's not quite as drastic um, as the as the impact that I was talking about. And so I guess that means that technology is part of the story, but it's it's probably not all of the story. Um, then. At, a question about trend growth, productivity growth. Um, so th there is nothing as easy to say as, well, if UK growth only settles at 2%, then we will have to do this or we will have to do that with interest rates because actually as growth, you know, as we're constantly revising our forecast for growth, we're very often revising our uh, forecast for potential growth as well. And we're being heavily informed by what's happening to the unemployment rate, what's happening to various uh, survey measures of slack to decide... Uh, when we get growth surprises, how much of that is demand and how much of that is supply. Uh, and I'm certainly not surprised that across a range of forecasters, people have very different estimates of uh, trend growth in, uh, in the UK uh, because it's been incredibly volatile in, in recent years. You know, we all know the story by now that after a financial crisis, uh, a lot of productivity is permanently lost. And in some cases, the trend growth rate is lower, at least for a time, afterwards, but it's not the case every time. Uh, and in any case, we have no idea how much of it is lost and what the new trend rate is. So they're all live questions for the MPC, but none that I have some great insights about how you should think about it that in a way that you didn't already know about. Um, somebody asked, is that the next move up? Uh, there's sort of, in, in, when I think about interest rates, and I tried to highlight this in, in, in my speech, um, you know, there is the economist in me that says at some point the unemployment rate goes so low that we must have pay pressure and that pay pressure must ultimately lead to upward pressure in inflation. And so I, you know, I'm not ready to throw that model out the window. Uh, the more agnostic forecaster in me just observes that wage growth hasn't gone up. Um, 
and, and is puzzled by that. And you know, there's a, a few potential stories. Some of them are longer-lived explanations than others. Um, but I would say on the balance of probabilities, yes, I, I do think uh, the next move in rates is up. Uh, but clearly, as the disappointments, you know, if disappointments keep coming, uh, then that becomes a more marginal, um, uh, a more marginal case than uh, than it is now. Um, and then a question about uh, the recession. It's a difficult one. You know, statistically, there is always the probability that there will be a recession over some horizon. Uh, at the time, at, at the current moment, I don't really see very clearly the ingredients for what the next UK recession uh, should be. And, of course, you can argue that you know, a year in advance, we never spot it. So that doesn't give you much comfort. All I can say is I can't tell a good story right now about why the UK should be on the verge uh, of another recession. So if it happens, we'll certainly respond to it. But it's not, uh, it's not in my forecast at the moment. Uh, and then lastly, a, a good question about you know, if there's all this talk of uh, increased desired savings, why is the household uh, savings rate so low? Um, a, a, a really important question, a really important point about all these models is that it's about the, uh, the desired savings rate. So it's the sort of off equilibrium that you don't observe. Um, and if everybody's trying to save too much uh, and therefore cutting consumption too much, then in equilibrium the savings rate may not actually fall very much. And the second point is that it interacts with you have both an increase in desired savings but a reduction in desired investment. And so you may see interest rates dropping a lot without observed uh, savings rates actually moving very much. Okay, we're ready for another round. There's a couple of questions at the back over there. Hi, what role do you believe the quantitative easing to have played in the recovery and where do you believe the economy would be without the creation of quantitative easing? And um, for, from the MPC perspective, um, can you see nominal rates go negative? And there was one more question behind you guys. The question is uh, related. Um, you mentioned asymmetry a couple of times, but to what extent does the asymmetry actually exist? We, we've seen negative interest rates. Uh, if it's negative 50 basis points, can it not be negative 5% at some point? Yeah, let me take those. Um, a question on, on asset purchases and what did it do and what would have happened if we hadn't done it. So the, I have absolutely no doubt that things uh, would have been a lot worse if we hadn't done it. Uh, so it's one thing to say it's an imperfect substitute for rate cuts. And if we had had the possibility of further rate cuts, then I think that would have been my preference. But we didn't have that possibility. And so asset purchases you know, were the right thing, uh, even if as I think, they probably had a, a, a diminishing effect over time and the early rounds were, uh, had a much bigger impact than the later rounds. But they still provided uh, support for um, asset prices and therefore for activity uh, and therefore ultimately for inflation. And I think they also provided uh, an, an expectations mechanism that even if you think those effects are not very powerful, at least you're letting people know, look, if I had the possibility, I would still be easing and therefore... Uh, the possibility of a rate hike is incredibly far into the future. And just that signaling effect also has a big influence on interest rates and gives people the confidence that 
interest rates at the time, the interest rates were not going to go up uh, for quite a long time, which actually, if you remember, in the first the very early phase of the crisis, uh, that wasn't obvious to everyone. Um, lots of central banks had cut to their lower bound, but a lot of markets were pricing in that by the end of that year, uh, interest rates would be going up again. And so making that point very clearly that they were not going to, uh, I think, made an important contribution. Uh, then questions about asymmetry and can interest rates go negative? Um, we have to keep an open mind about these things. Um, you know, exactly how far negative interest rates can go it depends a lot on the particular uh, setup of a financial system in each country, you know, what the, how the mortgage contracts are structured, uh, how the financial institutions are financed. Uh, and so the answer might be different for different countries. But certainly, uh, if you had asked me um, three or four years ago, is any central bank ever going negative uh, at the time, I would have said, no, that's crazy. You know, that's never going to happen. And here we are now, several central banks having negative rates. Um, so it's never say never. Uh, but as I say, the, 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 the decision on quite, you know, can it go below zero and how far can it go below zero will depend on the specifics uh, of, of the UK financial system at the time when, uh, when we might need to consider it in, in the future. There's a question about, you know, but if they can go negative, then is there really still an asymmetry? So I was very careful to say that the asymmetry is not that we can't ease from where we are. We can. We can cut uh, interest rates further, and the NPC has said that officially, uh, I think, in, in uh, February of, of last year, that they now do see scope uh, for interest rates being cut below 0.5%, should that be necessary. The, the asymmetry is in in the magnitude. So we can ease a little bit, but we can tighten a lot. That's the asymmetry. It's not that we are at, at the bound right now. Uh, and then there's the question of what, why can't interest rates be minus 5%? So recall that the argument for uh, why people thought interest rates shouldn't or couldn't go negative is because people always have the option of holding their assets in paper currency. And paper currency has a zero yield into it. In, and so if you try and push interest rates below zero, if you push them far enough below zero, then people will say, well, I will just hold whatever financial assets I have in paper money, and then at least I avoid this negative interest rates and I get zero. And what we don't know um, is exactly how far negative do you have to go before people start doing that. Because it is, it is costly. You know, it's very inconvenient to have all your assets in paper money. You probably need to buy an expensive safe in your house. Uh, and it's much more difficult to transact. So for 25 basis points, apparently, or 50 basis points, apparently, people are not going to go through the trouble. But I think a lot of the central banks, even the ones that have taken rates negative, think that if you push this argument too far and you go to, I don't know, maybe 1% or 2%, at some point you will hit that point where people say, okay, that's it now. I'm not keeping my money in the bank anymore. I'm taking it out in paper notes. And at that point... Either the further reductions in interest rates just have no effect because it just leads to this big asset substitution, or it could even have um, a, a counterproductive effect as people start pulling their money out of the banks uh, in, large, uh, in large quantities. It actually undermines the funding model of the bank, and so it could even be counterproductive. So I absolutely do think that lower bound is there. We just don't know exactly where it is, but um, it, it, it is absolutely there, and I don't think we can uh, go to minus five. I think there were some questions on the balcony. There's one over there and then one in the middle. 
What have you learnt from the last recession and what will you do differently when there is another recession? If the uh, government have a liability in the form of their debt on one side of the balance sheet and the Bank of England has bought that debt as an asset on theirs, what's the downside of just putting a line through both sides? Now one, one more, just a couple seats to the right. Hi, thanks. Um, you showed this one chart, which I found slightly scary, where you see sort of really rapidly rising debt in the developing world. Do you see any risks, medium to long term, there? In Sorry. the the debt one rising point. in the yeah. developing world, you showed yes. going up. Do you see any mid to long term risks there, from for a recession or whatever? What have we learned from the recession and uh, what would I do differently? Um, I'm not sure I would do things uh, vastly differently if the same recession played out. I think the interest rates were cut incredibly quickly and appropriately. Uh, Asset purchases were absolutely the appropriate tool. I'd do the whole thing again. Uh, And actually, I think it's probably a good roadmap for if there was another recession. We would cut interest rates... Uh, as far as we think they can go, and you know, that may be a different floor to where it was last time, uh, and, and we would do more asset purchases. So I, I don't think from the MPC's point of view, uh, you know, we have learned a lot in terms of not being too optimistic about how quickly things will recover, um, but I don't think we've learned something that would tell us that we need to deploy different tools or deploy them in different quantities if we had to do it all again. Uh, somebody asked a question about Um, I think effectively what you said is why don't you just cancel the gilts that are on the Bank of England's balance sheet. Um, I actually think that a a lot gets written on that um, that fundamentally misunderstands how this works. Um, It's it's not a a very intuitive argument, but I'll I'll, I'll try and make it uh, as, as easily as I can. So... First, you have to make a decision. Are you going to continue paying interest rates on reserves as we currently do, or are you going to stop paying interest on reserves? If you continue to pay interest on reserves and you cancel lots of assets, uh, that means that you also cancel all the coupon income that the Bank of England currently receives from these assets. Uh, But if you're still paying interest on reserves, you still have to pay the the banks uh, that interest rate. And so really, you know, if you consolidate the governance balance sheet and the Bank of England's balance sheets, you haven't cancelled the debt at all. All you've done is you've made it permanently floating rate debt. And so when interest rates go up, uh, the interest payments that the government has to pay just get, you know, it doesn't pay them to private sector guilt holders anymore, but it pays them to the Bank of England, who now has a shortfall because they have to pay the banks. So really the debt hasn't been cancelled. So then you might say, okay, well, so then let's not pay interest on reserves anymore. That gets very dangerous because the situation that you're finding yourself in then is we have uh, 375 uh, billion of reserves outstanding. And if we found ourselves in a situation where we wanted to raise interest rates and reserves are as they are now, probably way above the level of reserves that banks want to hold, 
we can't achieve a binding increase in interest rates. That's precisely the reason why we pay interest on reserves, is that so we can set interest rates where we want them, even when there are large excesses of reserves. So if you say you're not paying any more interest on reserves, then that is like saying, well, you know, even when I would like to raise interest rates, I can't. They're going to stay at zero. And they're going to stay at zero until such time as the economy grows large enough that 375 billion of reserves is once again the right amount. Um, it'll probably work as a, as a stimulus policy. The problem is it might work far too well. And really, you know, if you lose control over interest rates and you say, you know, I, I'm now, they're now set at zero, there's nothing I can do about it until some uncertain time in the future, you're really also abandoning the inflation target. You know, if, if, if you say, I just want stuff to go up, I don't care how fast and how far, then yeah, that's a policy you would consider. But actually, you have no control over whether you're going to achieve, for example, you know, 100% inflation in one year, or you're going to achieve 5% inflation over 20 years. Uh, and I, don't, I certainly wouldn't be very keen to give up the distinction between those two. So it's not that it wouldn't work. It's that you completely abandon control over interest rates and therefore over the inflation target. Uh, and I think a lot of people who talk about this very cavalierly, oh, it's easy and just you know, put a line through it, I think missed that, that point uh, of quite how risky that is. Uh, and then we had a, a question about the, the EM debt overhang. The whole point of my chart was that I do worry about it. Uh, and I'm showing that actually the, uh, the run-up in, in indebtedness in emerging markets was even bigger uh, relative to GDP than the one in advanced economies. Um, and the story is that maybe this run-up in debt was made on the back of um, income expectations that were too high. People were thinking emerging market growth is going to be 4 4.5% 4 forever. Uh, and then every year we keep revising down the forecast of what we think the sustainable growth of emerging markets is. And at some point, people might come to the conclusion that that debt is too much. And I don't know if what it'll result in is a long period of them trying to repay it and then achieving even lower growth as a result, or an outright crisis where there is a, a series of defaults. Um, the, that default scenario is you know, one of the risks that we're looking at. I don't know which one will happen, but uh, certainly I think it's relatively easy to make the prediction that emerging market growth over the next five years uh, is not going to look as rosy as emerging market growth over the past five years. Let's do another round right here at the front row in the middle. I'm actually a senior student in markets at a bank of England. My question to you this evening would be how effective do you think forward guidance is working? There's one in the, on the balcony I'm trying to get the attention. Yeah. In terms of demographics, um, the refugee crisis that we've seen last year, how does that feed into your thinking if, for example, 250,000 new working age uh, people come into our economy, how does that factor into wage inflation or maybe lack thereof? Uh, some thoughts on that, please. And there was one more on the balcony at the front. Uh, thank you. I, I think it was a very interesting chart you showed about um, Japan and um, how Japan front-run 
the um, Western countries uh, in many aspects. I was wondering if you could comment on the current uh, Abenomics and Kuroda's policies in, in Japan and as well as what Western countries can learn from the more and more Japanized, if you will, um, uh, monetary state. Uh, forward guidance is a, a policy that has come in a few uh, in a few phases. Uh, if you recall, the uh, the first phase in the UK was in 2013 when we said you know, we won't raise rates until the unemployment rate has fallen at least to a certain level, and then even then we won't raise them automatically. But until it falls to that level, you know, we promise we won't do anything unless some knockout conditions uh, apply. Uh, the second phase of forward guidance was that we went through that and we said actually, well, I say we, I wasn't on the committee at the time, but the committee at the time decided, okay, we've gone through that unemployment threshold and we still don't think the conditions are right uh, for an interest rate hike. And that then the, the guidance got replaced with uh, limited and gradual. Uh, and actually, I, I completely support the limited and gradual idea and a lot of what I said today is basically providing the underpinnings of limited and gradual. Why is it that I don't think we we'll, might not have to hike very much uh, and, and not right now is precisely because of, of all these considerations. So it, I think it's been a useful evolution in increasing the level of communication about our, our policy thinking. Um, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't mean that we can just say that and stop because limited and gradual in the end, um, you know, people then say, well, but when and how much and under what conditions? And so, you know, there's still a lot of gaps to fill in, and, and one of the things I was trying to do is to, to fill in those gaps. Uh, somebody asked a question about the, the refugees and, and immigration more generally. The, I was re- reminded of um, a, a story, which is that, you know, all, all this, I didn't use the words tonight, but, you know, a lot of what we're talking about for people falls under the secular stagnation um, headline. And actually, the first uh, person to coin the phrase was Alvin Hansen. He was thinking about secular stagnation in 1938, uh, and he worried about uh, population dynamics, and he said, oh, you know, it's, it's terrible. We're not going to have any population growth. We might even have outright population declines. Uh, and Keynes at the time wrote about it too and worried about the same thing, and people said, oh, these, these inexorable trends, it's very clear. We can't be wrong on this. Uh, this is definitely going to happen. And then World War II happened, and then the baby boom happened, and every, all the forecasts got completely uh, blown out of the water. So there is always the possibility that something very big will happen that means that these you know, deep dynamics driven by fertility and, and longevity will all of a sudden change to make my whole story irrelevant. Uh, I'm completely prepared for that. It's happened before. Uh, forecasts you know, often end up wrong, and longer-run forecasts are even wronger. Um, so, absolutely, it's, it's a valid question. Uh, at the moment, I think these things are not happening on a scale that you think would fundamentally uh, alter the story, but you could certainly think of circumstances where uh, changes, you know, not just in migration patterns, but also in, um, you know, lifestyle, labor market participation, uh, if those patterns change sufficiently, then you could have that at least unwinding some or all of these effects, and, and that's absolutely uh, something that we need to look out for. Uh, I'm going to pass on the question to comment on Japan's uh, economic and monetary policy, if you don't mind. Let's see whether there are some questions for the final rounds. That on the balcony. 
question on uh, demographic effects on monetary policy. There was a uh, paper, I can't recall the author, uh, from the IMF from about 2007, 2008, where they found uh, that even pre-crisis you found that the demographic bulge you see in the developed countries was suppressing the efficacy of monetary policy uh, because effectively it was lowering uh, the uh, interest rate elasticity of the intertemporal s substitution effect. Uh, and one could say that uh, maybe that's why interest rates have had to go so low this time to support inflation, uh, but contrary to what you're talking about as an equilibrium construct, uh, you might find that you actually have to go much higher in interest rates even if the equilibrium rate is, is low. Uh, an alternative version of this is Bill Dudley's uh, view that given the large balance sheet you're going into uh, rates with, that that is suppressing the long run, giving you the same effect. So how do you think about that, that away from your equilibrium point that you're making, which I think is very well argued, that actually from a policy perspective, you may actually have to go to much higher interest rates than markets are expecting? Okay, and then there were two questions at the... Yeah. No, no, sorry. It's a front, yeah. front row, and then the last, one, last question over here in the corner. Sure. Um, just one question on um, how the Bank of England and other central banks that you really talk to uh, look at the problem of negative rates and super low rates, and basically the super low returns that asset managers can get for uh, future pensioners. I mean, this goes back to the longevity issue and, and the fact that how much these low returns are now embedded in the anticipations of agents and agents now see low inflation as something that is structural and will remain for a very long time because taking the example of Switzerland for example the minimum returns on pensions went from you know, over the last 20 years from 4 to 2 and now to 0 this is a phenomenon that you're seeing also, I'm, I'm sure, in Holland, in, 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 uh, in the UK. So the pension industry is driving also, in a way, in my view, uh, uh, inflation anticipations lower. And how worried are you about that? Um, my question um, is regarding the natural um, rate of interest and especially kind of um, the problem of estimating, of pinpointing it down. Uh, you, you argue that the three Ds basically have a negative effect on uh, the natural interest rate, but um, to what extent uh, actually does pose it um, from the biblical side um, a problem to a policymaker setting interest rates to not know to not be able to pinpoint down the natural rate of interest if you want to incorporate in your monetary policy decision also um, the dynamics of debt uh, demographics and distribution of income. The, if I understood the, the first question right about you know, there's the, the effect of, uh, of demographics but there was also the effect of uh, quantitative easing that's uh, asset purchases that's possibly uh, suppressing uh, suppressing long-term interest rates and, and is there therefore a, a tension when, when we start to normalize if, if none of this applied uh, and all we had done was suppress long-term interest rates with asset purchases then you'd be right in that when we normalize interest rates if we leave the asset purchases in place 
then we would have to put them up higher than if we actually unwound the asset purchases. Um, however, given these considerations and given that you know, we need, I think we need every bit of help we can get, uh, I don't think that's a big uh, constraint on, on policy. Um, so but I, I, I don't see that as a, as a problem, but I may have misunderstood your question. Um, somebody asked about, you know, what do we do about these low returns and, and to, the, to the extent that they become ingrained in expectations. So here it's very important to make a distinction between real and nominal. So I made a point that uh, low real returns might just be a fact of life for a very long time, and lots of people will have to learn how to live with that and adapt their own savings decisions or their business models if they're a business um, to that possibility. Uh, what's important for us as a central bank is you know, we can't do anything about that real rate, but what we can do, as I mentioned, is it would, it's crucial for us to try and keep inflation expectations anchored at, at 2%. That's the best help we can, we can give, um, because if that unanchors, then we're really failing in our mandate, and, and, and as soon as we think that it's starting to happen, then we will deploy all the tools that we have at our disposal to bring it back to 2%. So that's something we can do about. The real component of that return and the fact that that may be lower than what people are used to is precisely what I'm pointing out, but I'm also saying uh, as, a, as a member of the MPC, there is nothing uh, we, can, uh, we can do about that. Okay, so to conclude, I would like to thank all of you for coming and for contrib contributing to uh, this evening's event with your uh, questions. So please join me to thank our speaker one more time. Thanks.